going fission. Australia's Nuclear Technology Podcast. Greetings listeners and welcome to Going Fission. This episode is very late and I apologise for that. Some of my time has been consumed by an exciting side project, which I would love to tell you more about in due time. But for now, please enjoy this episode with Stephen Wilson, energy economist and adjunct professor at University of Queensland. Enjoy. G'day listeners, today I have Professor Stephen Wilson, who is an adjunct professor at the University of Queensland. Uh, Professor Stephen uh, appeared on the Power Hungry podcast with Robert Bryce a couple of of months ago back in August, Uh, but I've got him today on Going Fishing podcast, and hopefully we'll cover a, uh, a few different things that have happened in the last few months since. Stephen Wilson, welcome to Going Fishing. Thanks, Logan. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'll get you to just introduce yourself briefly uh, about who you are and what you do. I um, I still recommend everyone should go and fo- listen to your podcast on a um, on on Power Hungry. But for those who might not have uh, heard that sure. one so far, floor yes. is yours. So I'm uh, I might call myself an energy tragic. I've spent my whole career in uh, energy, various aspects of energy policy. Originally trained as a mechanical engineer. Um, at Melbourne Uni and uh, worked in consulting um, in Melbourne, uh, Hong Kong and London and then worked in the mining industry, um, ran the industry analysis team in Rio Tinto Energy for five years uh, and then did a little more consulting and then I spent three and a half years as a full-time teaching and research academic at the University of Queensland uh, and now I'm, I'm back in the wild in the private sector, Logan. And uh, think, I think the thing that might have prompted you to reach out to me was the uh, the study that we did during my time at UQ on uh, what would be required for nuclear energy plants to be operating in Australia from the 2030s. Well, that's quite right. I, um, I'd been following a bit of the information that Australian Nuclear Association has put out and actually made available uh, online, which is useful for someone in, in, in Melbourne because none of this discussion happens in this state it's all mostly in in new south wales or in adelaide but um yeah so i, I saw that and we reached out and i had a look at the uh, um at the report and i thought oh yeah okay i better reach out to a uh, to uh, professor stephen wilson but sort of more recently and a um i think you might have something to say on this it's that uh Obviously, 2022 has been a bit of a tumultuous period in sort of worldwide energy policy. You know, mm. Europe, we've had the, the French government, they've fully nationalised EDF, and in German, Germany, they're nationalising UNIPA. And um, more more locally, particularly for Victoria, um, the Daniel Andrews government has put forth a policy for re-election in the state, in the state election uh, coming up next month in November. Mm. Uh, that they want to revive the SEC or the State Electricity Commission of Victoria. So I um, want to, since you're actually a, a Melbourne boy originally, grew up in Leopold, I understand. Yeah, I did. Um, you're actually around in the 90s in Victoria when uh, the SEC was a thing and when it, more importantly when it was starting to be privatised. Would you like to speak a bit about that? Yeah, I, uh, I started my career just as the sun was setting on the SEC. Um, came out of uh, engineering school, you know, in the late 80s and then started my career in um, energy consulting, actually in energy efficiency and demand side management 
in the uh, very early 90s in Victoria. So as you say, that was um, that was the era when um, the what, what was the SEC uh, was privatised. Um, assets were uh, well, the assets were sold. The SEC was restructured and the assets were uh, sold off, um, and competition was introduced. Uh, so before the national electricity market existed, there was a competitive um, electricity market with private ownership of generators in Victoria, um, managed by a thing called the VPX, the Victorian Power Exchange. So that was sort of the, the pilot or the forerunner in a sense of the national market. Uh, so yeah, the SEC, um, for those who don't recall or weren't in Victoria, was a, uh, an, a vertically integrated electricity um, organisation responsible for generation, transmission, distribution, metering and billing, everything from the uh, brown coal mines in the Latrobe Valley to the point of uh, delivery to the customers. And uh, and that was that was um, vertically disaggregated, separate, they separated generation from uh, transmission and distribution, um, sold off the, the generation assets and, and introduced a competitive market, uh, and then later introduced retail competition uh, and then so, sometime after that, um, at, at the same time, sort of in parallel with that process, um, the federal government in Canberra under, I think by, by that time, I think Paul Keating was the prime minister, was introducing major economic reforms th throughout the economy. And one part of that involved um, introducing competitive market principles to electricity uh, on the national level and convincing the state governments to um, essentially become part of a national electricity market. Did you say just before that even when it was a government utility, there were still elements of competitive marketplaces under that arrangement? In the national electricity market in the early days, not all of the competing generators in the wholesale market were privately owned. Right. So in the in the early days, you actually had um, private generation companies that had purchased power plants from the Victorian government, competing with power plants in New South Wales that were still owned by the New South Wales government, and indeed the snowy hydro assets that were owned by a combination of the federal government, the New South Wales government, and the and the Victorian government. So, so in the in the beginning, the, the really the market in the beginning was um, so you, you had the original Victorian market. Then um, that was then replaced by the national market um, with New South Wales and South Australia coming in, uh, and then um, at a later time, the interconnector was built. Um, from Victoria ta to Tasmania, and Tasmania came into the national market. This is Basslink, yeah. Yeah, Basslink, the the high voltage direct current subsea cable, um, but it's but still still with state government ownership of the assets in Tasmania, and then in Queensland you had the um, the Queensland New South Wales interconnector um, built, and Queensland came into the competitive market. But even to even today. I think it's something like two thirds of the generation capacity in Queensland is owned by the state government, and all of the transmission and distribution networks are owned by the state government up here. 
So, so it's, yeah. So there's always been elements of the total system, the energy system, that were privately owned. Yeah, that's so that, that were privately owned or that were not privately owned? It sounds like even back before privatisation, at least in Victoria in the 90s, there were still elements on the system nationally that were privately owned. Is what you're no, saying, the, right? the general picture before competition and privatisation was state government ownership. Majority, yeah, but majority state was, government there ownership. There were some if you, items. If you go, if you go all the way back to the really old days before the SEC, then you had small private electricity. Well, a combination, I think, of private investors and um, city councils providing electricity from sort of relatively small inner city power stations to small networks of of customers, um, and 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 no no interconnected statewide system. So the SEC. Um, was established by I think uh, basically between uh, the the wars and uh, John Monash, the great World War One general, was put in charge essentially of um, the, the the mega project of electrifying the whole state, so extending the electricity um, network to basically everyone in the state and. Um, powering that off the back of large central coal-fired power plants in the Latrobe Valley, using using technology that um, was was brought out from Germany to 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 burn that you know low rank high moisture coal. So that was and and so I, and I think when the government did that back in the in the 1930s, they um, passed a law that basically gave the state government the power to take over the responsibility for providing electricity um, services. So it was a sort of a, like a nationalisation, but at the state level. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we sort of we sort of these things come in big long circles. Yeah, it's yeah. cyclical to cyclical. to some degree. Yeah, that's right. But over multiple multiple generations. Yeah. Fascinating. As the the, the current Labor government has sort of announced, they're bringing in the uh, they're going to revive the SEC with a promise of a hundred percent renewable energy. Sort of what. What do you think this means in terms of Victorian energy policy? Um, well, that's a very that's a very good question. So I think th there's a sort of retro appeal um, to the name of this of the SEC. Um, you know, people maybe remember it with fondness. Uh, I mean, why why revive the name uh, rather than just you know create something with a new name, uh, and you know a cool a cool new modern name? They've, they've um, picked up the old original name, but they're not, um, or certainly not at this stage, they're not proposing to go and buy back the um, old coal-fired power plants from the private current, from the current private owners. Um, they're proposing to use this government-owned vehicle to um, promote the development of assets like large offshore wind farms. That's my understanding from what I've seen of the announcement. So what does it mean? Um, well, I, I, I think I've been asking the question for about six years now, Logan, you know, are we sleepwalking back to central planning? I asked that question at the engineers conference in 2016. Are we sleepwalking back to central planning? And I've been asking people, you know, is the push for um, renewable energy really com uh, compatible with competitive electricity market principles? And uh, and I think I think the answer to that is it's no, it's not really compatible. I'm always 
just over the last couple of days since listening to that announcement, I've been thinking, well, we've got existing generators, large generators, such as in the Latrobe Valley, and coal infrastructure all over the over the, the NEM, the eastern seaboard, and eventually they're leaving the market. And since most of them are all privately owned, they will execute the mandates of their, their contract. They'll shut down those facilities and they'll leave. But then they've got no particular responsibility to ensure that Australia, the lights stay on. So I'm kind of thinking, is that responsibility just going to default back to government? And I'm kind of wondering if this revitalisation yeah. of the SEC is the first yeah. step in that it's going to become like this dragon that gets larger and larger and they're going to have to step up if they're going to ride it. Yeah, I think um, that, that these are very important questions that, that not enough people, few if any people, are actually asking these questions. So, you know, who's responsible for security of supply is, um, is a question that was... I suppose it was sort of always hanging there and was never really addressed. The market reformers, I think, in the 1990s took the view that um, you, you don't need to worry about security of supply because the market will the market will provide. You know, it's a it's a it's a classic sort of Adam Smith, um, you know, free market economic argument that the the profit incentive will attract investors and investors will um through their desire for profit will always collectively between them they'll make sure that there's enough generation capacity of the right type in the right place at the right time and you know that that argument is that's just a classic um free market argument you know that's why capitalism works that's why communism failed you know that sort of very general argument that's applied to a lot of different markets um though so, it's a model yeah. that seems to fall apart in terms of electricity markets and that's not just in australia that's been noticed particularly recently uh worldwide in a lot of situations where this has happened yeah yeah I, well i think you need uh, the, the difficulty with these things is that um there's never a perfect controlled experiment there's always lots of things happening and you know one person will ascribe an effect to one cause and another person will ascribe the same effect to a different cause you know so our problems at the moment are all the result of the war in ukraine says someone and someone else says our problems at the moment are all a result of you know um over investment in wind and solar and you, you can't quite separate the effects so the, but the, the question you asked is you know, does does free do free market competitive principles really work in electricity markets? And that that was always a question. Um, even so back I, at the back in the nineties. Even back in the nineties, yeah. yeah. Right. So when I was when I was a young consultant in Hong Kong, um, I landed in Hong Kong in nineteen ninety nine. So after my the first six and a half years of my career was working out of Melbourne on energy efficiency and demand side management programs. So this was at the end of the State Electricity Commission era, um, you know, the end of the SECV and Elcom um, in New South Wales and QEC in Queensland. In, in that in that era, in the early 90s, um, 
all the state governments, I think they were mostly Labor state governments, were bringing into Australia concepts from the United States on um, using energy efficiency and demand-side management programs to encourage, to incentivise customers to improve the energy efficiency of the of their equipment, their lights, their air conditioning, you know, the motors in their factories, their uh, and so on, uh, as as a more economic way um, of um, you know developing the system than just building more power plants. That was that's sort of the you know more power plants or more transmission lines or distribution assets. That was the basic idea. If you if you did the analysis, it was more efficient to invest in efficiency or load shifting or, or whatever. Um, and so that that was all happening sort of at, in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then the wave of privatization happened and, and a lot of those initiatives got basically sort of pushed to the side. But and and so, but and by the end of that, so by the end of that decade, by the end of the '90s, um, you know, we had the the Victorian market was a competitive market. The the national market had just been launched, and just around that time, well, actually, interestingly, at that time, Logan, um, there were concerns in Victoria that um, they would struggle to meet peak demand on a very hot summer's day, and the Victorian Power Exchange actually, the VPX actually went out to customers. Um, with bids for interruptibility, you know, please tell us how much load you can interrupt and how much um, we would need to pay you to, uh, to you know, to be available for interruption and how much we'd need to pay you in the event of interruption. This is offers to large industrial power. Now the way the way they ran the program, the market operator ran the program by going to the retailers and saying, "You talk to your customers, aggregate." Um, what you can offer and then and then offer that to us on a competitive basis and so the retailers went out or people who are holding people who are supplying customers on a retail level went to their customers and and aggregated aggregated their you know their demand side uh, bids together and then offered those to the uh, to the market operator mm. so th th this is a concept that's been revived in recent times as if it's some sort of wonderful new discovery or invention it's actually it's actually quite an old idea. That's that yeah. strikes me as interesting because yeah. I um yeah it's and it's not really something well, not really something that I'd heard of previously to getting into sort of the uh, interested in the energy space because I guess I didn't have to care about it. Yeah. But um, one thing that strikes me is every year I generally get a text message from United who owns the distribution network in my corner of Victoria yeah. saying oh yeah you know consider you know not using so much electricity this summer to lighten the load. I think, well, this looks like a system that's failing. But, um, yeah, so you mentioned sort of demand management and it had been considered sort of previously and sort of, uh, and it's just, I suppose, again, it's now a thing that's coming to the fore. It's, it's coming back. I can't see it as anything other than the system is failing and we have to restrict well, we have to restrict demand such that we don't run out of supply. I mean, is there any other way of looking at it? I think there are other ways of looking at it, but the question, it's a question of degree. Mm. You know, it's a question of um, how much can you expect to get from interruptibility, um, from interruptibility programs on the demand side. And the answer to that is a modest amount, I think, but not a huge amount. It's not like a... It's not like a magic bullet answer to all of the problems. 
it's a band-aid solution that should indicate that this is a problem that needs a more uh, substantial fix or yeah it's a yeah it's a it's it's one part of the story which i think has been significantly exaggerated by certain people mm-hmm. but but remember that you know remember the crucial the most crucial thing about power systems is you've got to balance supply and demand exactly at in all real times. time in real time yeah to the to the sort of 100 millisecond level you need to keep supply and demand very very closely balanced and the indicator of how well you're doing that is the system frequency how close to 50 hertz the nominal 50 hertz is the system frequency right now is an indicator of that and if you can't manage to keep the the generation and the loads in almost perfect balance you're at risk of blacking out the whole system very very quickly like in less than 60 seconds in a cascading blackout Mm. and so and so because of that every power system in the world has got a secret load shedding schedule in the bottom drawer because because to avoid blacking the whole system out you want to selectively drop certain loads if you can't if you can't increase generation to meet load you shut off a neighborhood somewhere you need to yeah that's right need to drop a suburb or three and um and there's a secret list in every state um of what order to drop load basically so that's you know that that's um involuntary load shedding i think is the technical term for it um you're not and you and those those folks those customers don't get compensated for that so demand side bidding programs that sort of sit in between trying to meet all the load at all times um by uh, by offering to pay people to to reduce load so there's there's nothing there's nothing in principle wrong with that it's just a question of how much can you expect to get and the answer is not not a not a huge amount um but it's sort of i mean this sort of links back to your question about who's responsible for the reliability of the system or the security of of the supply on the system um and you know and does anyone need to be responsible in a competitive market environment and uh so that that question was always there and there were critics of um competition who thought that was a really big issue um there were the sort of economic believers who thought it wasn't anything to worry about and when i landed in hong kong in 99 in 1999 that was definitely one of the questions in the mind of the government was how do you how do you make sure in a competitive market that you've that you've got enough and uh and there was so so the 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 skeptics um the skeptics on that included some pretty notable people like professor josco paul josco and uh, dick schlemensi at mit they thought that um in a deliberalized in a what's it called a um deregulated or liberalized or competitive market environment you wouldn't uh in the absence of long-term contracts you would not see investment in large-scale generation assets which is essentially what's happened correct so and and um you know you look at the you look at the um asset retirements generation capacity withdrawals and the investments in the last decade and all the withdrawals are thermal predominantly uh, black and brown coal plants and all of the investments being in wind and solar um but actually and if you look in a bit more detail you'll see that the wind and solar investments 
have, um, and there's there's over 10 gigawatts of that. There's been about four gigawatts of uh, coal withdrawals, mostly in the early part. Um, there's a few looming now ahead of us, and then there was but there's been something on the order of 10 gigawatts of wind and solar investment. Um, so you know, but you look at you look below the surface of that, and there are long-term contracts underpinning those wind and solar investments. It's a combination of incentive schemes and and long-term contracts, and and indeed the the design of the incentive schemes has driven the um, the generation retail companies to write long-term contracts with wind farms and solar farms in order to meet their obligations under the target. What is the simple upshot of these long-term contracts for a, uh, these these new assets? What guarantee do these contracts provide to these uh, wind and solar farms that give them that certainty or confidence to build? Oh, the key thing is they provide guarantees to the debt. So the only way you can get you know, no one's going to build assets like this without um, um, commercial debt alongside the equity. Mm. And the only way that the bankers will lend to the projects is if there's uh, offtake contracts guaranteeing the revenue stream. And the offtake contracts have to be with, um, you know, certain sort of blue chip type um, companies. So the, the, so, the, so the large generation retail companies have large portfolios of customers Right, they dominate the retail supply. They've got a large base of customers. Everyone from you and me to big factories, you know, large commercial buildings and, and big factories. Large customer base of, of essentially, you know, demand load that you know will be there, and uh, and solid balance sheets, and then a law that says X percent of this of their supply must come from, you know, these classes of technology, wind and solar, in this case. And so they can go to the banks. Uh, so they, they, they can write a contract with a wind farm developer or a solar farm developer that says, um, yep, we agree to buy, you know, this many um, megawatt hours of power. Or you're building X megawatts of, um, of capacity. We expect over the course of the year it'll generate Y megawatt hours of electricity. We'll pay you Z dollars per megawatt hour for that. And by the way, uh, and we'll just we'll just trade those megawatt hours in our portfolio in our trading room, and make it fit in with, you know, fit in with our other generation and our customer load. And by the way, you'll give us the um, certificates that uh, that are issued by the government. Now, those certificates are, they, are these the um, is it the RETs or the RECs? RECs, yeah, 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 LGCs, large generator certificates, yeah, under the RET, the renewable energy target, yeah. Okay, right. And are these the same certificates that you can trade in terms of uh, to? If you've got more than you need, you can sell them to someone else. If mm. you've got if you've got fewer than you need, you can buy from someone else. Yes. And this is how places like, for example, the ACT says we're a hundred percent renewable. This is the mechanism, is it not? Yeah, they've. Um they've written uh, contracts mm. no i remember it's when i was reading it, meredith angwin's shorting the grid and she describes yeah. systems very similar to this and i was thinking to myself all the way through it how much of this it, it, yeah. is analogous to what's happening in australia and i think probably yeah, quite more a than lot. less yeah there's quite a lot so the the 
America, America's electricity is, well, America doesn't have one grid. It's actually got several big grids. Um, and it's been described as, because each state is slightly different. There are clusters of states that form, you know, different types of, oh, of markets. You call them RTOs, know. I think. Y yeah, yeah, regional transmission organisers. So the, so the jargon is different in the US mm. and the, the detail of... The, the extent to which they've they've got competition is different in the US. They haven't really got the full-blown... They never went quite to the extent that we did in Australia with full-blown full retail competition. And and the US is a patchwork. So there are parts of the US that have still got a model that's that's similar to the old SECV in Victoria. Mm, except they've with, got regulated yeah. and deregulated. Well, yeah, except, except the typical model in the US is private ownership and, and regulation by some sort of government body. Um, but, but, but yeah. But be that as it may, there are a lot of similarities, and mm. and in, incentive schemes for renewable energy is one of the similarities. Although the mechanisms they use tend to differ, like they use production tax credits, for example, in the, in the US. Um, so, yeah. But the big the big thing. I mean, you mentioned the hundred percent renewable um, messaging or propaganda. Well, this which is for the the announcement for revitalising the ECC, Yes. Well, no, you mentioned the ACT, you know. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, the ACT. Claiming that they're 100% renewable. So, I mean, it's essentially an accounting exercise where, you know, someone's holding certificates um, for generation from renewable sources, mm. which, which over the course of a year is equivalent to the amount of energy consumed in that particular location, the ACT or wherever it might be. I mean, companies claim, yeah, we're 100% renewable. So in one hand, they're, they're consuming electricity on some on-demand profile, and in the other hand, they've got a bunch of certificates representing renewable generation. But if you look in real time, that, those two things don't actually match. It's not 100% green in any technical only, sense. Yeah. Well, the only, the only reason that companies or places like the ACT are able to claim that they're 100% renewable is because other people are not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is the problem. So people think, oh, well, they could do it. So everyone can do it. Well, actually, no, that's not correct. Because for everyone to do it, you've got to get the whole system to work properly and getting the whole system and, 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 the, and the absolutely non-negotiable technical, physical requirement that you balance supply and demand exactly on a real-time basis gets harder and harder and harder to achieve the more renewables you force into the system. Mm. And more expensive, and, and dramatically more expensive as well. Yep. Look, I'm going to move away from Victoria. From have you got renovations going on at the moment? It's the house next door. So next door has renovations came, going on. The, yeah, sorry about that. The, no. the flood came 50 centimeters below our floorboards, Oof. but it was but it was knee deep next door. So oh dear. <laughs> they're, rebuilding, yeah, okay. they're rebuilding that house. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm very fortunate in that my neck of the woods it hasn't been a it hasn't been an issue, but certainly in um, regional Victoria, definitely. And you're out in Queensland, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Full on. Um. Well, heading out towards your way. So your premier for for Queensland, Anastasia Palaszczuk, has announced. And I think this was. I forget when this was, uh, announced a $62 billion plan to decarbonise the Queensland grid by 2035, which is ambitious. This includes two pumped hydro, pro hydro dam projects, a large wind solar farm and additional transmission. Um, what do you reckon? Is this a technical plan or is this another political offering? Uh, I think this is going to be extremely difficult to achieve. Um, I think get, getting the system to function with that level of um, 
renewable energy, you know, even with that amount of storage is going to be very challenging just on a technical level. Um, building assets on this scale in that time frame, I think is extremely ambitious. These two dams, I think, are either individually or combined are about the size or even larger than um, the Snowy Pumped Hydro Scheme, yeah? Yeah, they're, they're huge. Um, and and I think they were announced before there was any sort of deep local consultation. Okay. So, 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 so I, don't, I don't think it's... I, I think if you had to place a bet, you know, will these assets be up and running and operating in this time frame, you'd be foolish to bet that they will. That that's just my humble opinion on on assets of this scale. But even even once these assets are built, getting the system to sort of function well, I, I think is still an open question. Mm. Um, the pre the pre you know the previous Queensland official target was fifty percent the fifty percent QRET right fifty yep. percent renewables by I think it was twenty thirty. They're now talking about seventy percent by twenty thirty two. And I think it's 80% by 2035. Now, I've seen that there's a report, which I think is public actually, which looked at the 50% QRET and couldn't get, um, couldn't get supply and demand to match subject to all the um, constraints in the, in the network, in the transmission system. And, and was, was, was struggling just to, just to get that to work at that level it didn't they didn't even have time to look at the cost issue right so it's just a technical so, analysis first and foremost well no it was actually an economic optimization analysis oh, okay. it was actually a least cost economic optimization analysis but in the report they didn't even report the cost numbers because they were struggling just to get the supply and demand to balance subject to the transmission constraints so you know, and and so that was at a 50% target. And now we're talking about a 70% target two years later, and then an 80% target another three years after that. And, you know, and then you, you consider the, um, the the balancing issues in, in, in power systems, you know, achieving stability with these levels of um, low inertia DC generation is going to be, in my view, and from some work that I've been involved with, I think is going to be extremely difficult. If it can be achieved, it's going to be extremely expensive. And it, there's likely to be, again, in my judgment, um, a, a large political backlash before we get near these targets. You mentioned just then low inertia. Now, I understand that in terms of, um, or just simply like inertia is basically provided when you have large spinning steel turbines that weigh you know several hundred to a thousand tons or something and you know if they're spinning and there's a fault on the system the inertia of that system will give you time to respond to uh, some kind of transient in the system now wind and so solar has none because there's nothing spinning correct wind has a little bit no, but, negligible. no but, yeah winds effectively none as well yeah. Um, now, I thought hydro still would have had a fair bit, and it seems that the bulk of the plan, yeah, as stated, yeah. it's going to be largely hydro. I would have thought that would have still provided a bit of inertia. Is that the case? Or Well, but remember that if you're trying to build a system that's got wind, solar, and, and hydro pump storage, mm. there are times when uh, you're... There's sort of three modes of that system. There's there's a mode where the pumped hydro is generating, 
Right. There's a mode where the wind and solar exceeds the load and is pumping, it's running the pumped hydro in reverse. It's pumping the water back uphill. Yep. And there's times when the pumped hydro is sitting there, not neither generating nor pumping. Standby. Yeah. Right. So, and, and, and in all these kind of systems, when you look at the economics, you still have significant, significant curtailment of wind and solar. So there's a large proportion of your wind and solar generation, which it's not economic to store. Okay, so that, so that, so there are significant periods of time when um, your you, you know your 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 wind and solar output exceeds the load, and so you're curtailing some of that wind and solar output. So what you're talking about during those times is running an AC synchronous system with nothing but non-synchronous DC zero inertia non-synchronous DC generation. Right, and so it's only time. The only times you're going to have inertia or significant inertia on such a system is when the hydro is generating, and yeah. would it provide inertia when it's pumping as well, or is it only one way? That's a good question, um, and uh, it, it certainly won't be. No, I, I don't think it, it. It provides some inertia on the load side, but whether it helps you to manage and, and uh, keep the system stable, I think is a, is a significant question mark. Okay, gotcha. But, but in any case, yeah. Um, yeah, if you're not if you're not running the hydro, which during a pumped hydro system is probably a significant yeah. portion of the time, a very large proportion of the time, yeah, yeah, it's that's not right. Providing that inertia. So you've got a you've got a you've got a, essentially a zero inertia system, and the only thing that if if you look at the equations that govern the system, if you look at the swing equation, you'll see that the only thing that um, affects what what's called rock off R O C O F rate of change of frequency mm. is the physical inertia, and so that, that you you'll see that in the structure of the equation. Um, so you know I I don't think and and you know some some work that I've been involved with and this is this is actually um, in a paper published at an IEEE conference um, that um, I wrote with a research student and a colleague at UQ. Um, you know, I don't think he can maintain frequency. What, what, we, what that research showed is that at, above a certain percentage of wind and solar penetration, something around sort of 70%, 65, 70, 75% around that level, on an instantaneous basis, not on an annual energy basis, on an instantaneous basis, you can't maintain frequency stability. And and all the all the um, all the sort of tricks that you try to to implement to overcome your lack of physical inertia um, tend to be very limited in the scope of support that they can provide. So it's a very weak, very flaky system. And my I mean my sense is that. The problems that we're seeing in models, very simple models, are likely to be much worse in a physical, in a real physical system, which is always, yeah, always more complicated, always more difficult, always more messy in the real world than in the purified, rarefied world of the model. Okay. Now, briefly in sort of preparing for this, I did have a quick look at what's existing on the Queensland grid. Now, I think there's about 8 gigawatts capacity of coal just within mm. Queensland. Mm. It doesn't sound like 
this, at least the discussion we're having, that this plan is going to be technically up to snuff in actually displacing that load? Well, the question is how this all gets managed. Because at the moment, you've actually got two separate, well, several separate Queensland government-owned companies. So companies that are all owned by the Queensland government that are sort of all in competition with one another and sort of working at cross-purposes, if you like. So you've got CS Energy and Stanwell, which are both owned by the Queensland government and are officially uh, competing with one another in a competitive market and competing with the generators south of the Tweed down in New South Wales. If I could just interrupt for a moment, yeah. is the majority of Queensland generating infrastructure government-owned? Yes, about two-thirds. About yeah. two-thirds, okay. So you've, so you've got a bunch of Queensland coal plant, Queensland state government-owned coal plants competing officially competing against other Queensland state government owned coal plants. So they're supposed to be competing and driving down the price. Of course, the reality is it's an oligopoly north of the Tweed, north of the north of the interconnector constraint across the border. Hmm. It's effectively an oligopoly. The traders can actually achieve any price they want. And they've 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 demonstrated that in the past until people sort of questioned it and then, you know, they got a slap on the wrist and told to behave themselves. So it's a kind of fake competitive market in Queensland. Right. Okay. You've got to sort of keep that in context. Um, and then on top of that, you've got another Queensland government-owned company, Cleanco, which is out there building um, renewable energy assets and, and holding the like the Wyvern Hope pump storage and, and those assets. And they're, they're aggressively competing with the coal-fired, the, the companies that own the coal-fired power plants. So the, the, the typical thing is, you know, they'll, they'll go and put down and there's, there's a large solar farm being developed out west of Brisbane, which is going to be connected to the transmission grid right next door to the largest, newest, most efficient, lowest emissions coal plant in the state, just on the, just on the downstream side of the, of the coal plant. So that'll take, that'll take dispatch away from that coal plant and and undermine the finances of that coal plant, but but all of these assets go up to a common owner, which is the Queensland state government. So it's a very strange situation. Um, mm. um, you know, it's sort of it's sort of like sort of weird pretend competition combined with some sort of strange central planning. It's a very strange world. Yeah, right. I mean the the way I see it with South Australia and they shut down their last coal-fired power plant several years ago. Mm. But it seems to me that, you know, advocates for sort of clean energy will say, well, this was a great success and a victory for renewable energy. But I think when you look a bit deeper, this is, well, no, it just, it basically went under because the people running it thought the variability in the system means that we cannot operate this facility and turn a profit on it. So we might as well just demolish it. And, well send it away now it seems like it's a similar thing happening you know in that context you described with the um the the coal-fired power plants there but i'm just kind of guessing that perhaps there isn't quite the renewable penetration or the variable penetration there yet such that the coal-fired operators are, uh, are just going to walk away at this stage i can still operate well in, in queensland the the penetration of renewables is a little bit lower than it is in the southern states mm. it's below the NEM average actually yep um i think it's on the order of 20 percent 
whereas the NEM average for wind and solar is about 25, close to 25 on an annual basis. And then if you add the hydro in, you get to about 33, something like that. Yep. So it's a little bit lower than Queensland in Queensland than it is in the southern Absolutely. states. Yeah. The other thing is that Queensland's um, coal-fired power plant fleet is the youngest uh, and the most efficient in Australia, and it and, and, and the excess um, generation gets uh, exported south into New South Wales. So there's a there's a consistent southward flow of megawatt hours and there's a consistent northward flow of dollars okay which is, so they're which, is, able, which is very significant yeah so queensland to a large degree is able to export a lot of their excess to new south wales yeah that's right what's happening there actually because when hazelwood in victoria shut down in i think 2017 mm-hmm. we were supposed to go from a net energy exporter to a net energy importer now obviously that majority of that i envisaged was going to come from New South Wales, which I'm also guessing now if Queensland was a um, also a net exporter, they can only export to New South Wales, so is it that perhaps Victoria was getting Queensland's additional electricity through New South Wales? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you sort of yeah. attribute, but um, it's one big system with constraints. And it, it, you know, it all has to balance so that you know it's the, the old the old issue we talked about that generation and load have to balance at all times. Um, yep. All right, I'm going to move on again. So I um, this is back in March of this year. So prior to winning the election, the federal election, Chris Bowen, who was our energy minister, stated the regulatory investment test for transmission infrastructure or the RIT-T test. Mm. is no longer fit for purpose and would be overhauled in a new Labor government. What's the, well, what's the RIT-T test? Yeah, as you said, Logan, it's the regulated investment test for transmission. So why do we have this test? Um, the reason we have this test is that if, if you're an owner of transmission assets, and there's an equivalent test for distribution as well, yep. RIT-D, um, so if you own these kind of network assets, if you're a transmission company or a distribution company, um, you're not uh, you're, you're just you're just carrying the electrons for the competitive market between the generators and the customers, but you're not in a competitive market yourself. Um, you're considered to be a natural monopoly, and so you're a regulated business, not a free market competitive free market business. And so you can't just go and um, decide that you want to build some more transmission lines or build a new substation or, or what have you and charge that to your customers. You have to go to the regulator and get permission to do that. And once the regulator has given you permission to build your new transmission line or your new substation or whatever the case may be, you then put that into this thing called your regulated asset base. And the prices that you're allowed to charge for your transmission services or if you're a distribution network for your distribution services uh, are basically prices that let you recover the cost of running the business, you know, paying everyone and running the office and all the rest and uh, making an allowed rate of return on your regulated asset base. That's that's the big thing, making a re- an allowed regulated return. So the the rate of return is is set by the regulator, and the um, and the asset base that it's applied to is set by the regulator. 
So you need some sort of test, some sort of economic test that the regulator applies or checks the calculation to see whether that this new investment that's being requested is justified or not. And that so that, that that's there to protect the interests of the customers. That's what it's there for. So in layman's term, it's a bit like the transmission and distribution, uh, transmission operators and distribution operators are essentially a middleman. And this is a test to stop them from just investing and investing and investing and increasing their share of what they can gain as a middleman without justification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the term that's often thrown around is this term gold plating, you know. So yep. gold plating is, in, is, is, is a form of intentional overinvestment. I mean, they're not literally putting gold plating on things, but that that's the, the idea. It's like, oh, we need the gold plated one, sir, you know, and then and then earn our rate of return on that. So there's, there's two things is do you need the asset at all? Do you need that new transmission line? Do you need that new substation? And then if the answer to that's yes, you know, how expensive a transmission line or how expensive a substation should it be? Um, you know, what should its capacity be? What, you know, what, what's the what's the cost of building that thing? And and so if there was no regulatory supervision, these companies would all have a huge incentive to just overbuild the whole thing and charge it all through to customers who've got no choice because they're captive. So that's what. The, so the RIT T test is not some obscure academic thing. It's it's the it's like it is the line of defence protecting the customer from overcharging, and the problem is. So so remember I said earlier that. Um, when you look at uh, you look at the Queensland case, you know you see that it's it's with with very high shares of renewables, it's very difficult to balance supply and demand, not just in aggregate across the state, but it, across all the nodes of the network, subject to all the transmission constraints. And then people say, oh, well, that's fine. We just we just relieve those transmission constraints by making more investments. The, this is where we come back to the, the these fighting. economic tests. Uh, yeah, it's it's like. Okay, but you know what would that look like in economic terms as an investment? Um, what does that look like for customers? And the problem with the, the fundamental problem with with all of these plans, because you've got these very low um, utilization these these low capacity factors, annual capacity factors on wind and solar generation is is low. So you've got these lots and lots of megawatts of capacity sitting there, but not generating very much energy over the course of the year because it's all part-time energy flows. And what that, that problem ripples through then into the transmission that's connecting those assets. And so the utilization rate of all these transmission assets is also very low. And so when you run them through the economic test, guess what? They don't pass. <laughs> And so, and so the situation is that that um, well, there was a speech by um, the, the, the now minister before he was the minister back in March to the conference of the network companies, praising the Victorian government and the New South Wales government for giving themselves the powers to circumvent this economic test. It's a little bit concerning. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know, so, and the the problem is, Logan, that these these things are going to be very expensive, mm. very expensive. Well, it comes back to the uh, um, the LCOE. I, I it just seems to be that every time someone says, "Well, renewables and you know, wind and solar is cheaper than everything else," it's all, you can guarantee that it's always based on the levelized cost of of energy or a levelized cost of electricity, and 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 it is not. 
a measure of the total system costs. And I think they trade on the fact that I think most people don't understand that. It's, it's very a, misleading. It's, it's a bit of a, what do you call it? The two legs, no, was it? Four legs good, two legs bad. It's just something people <laughs> chant don't really understand. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. So uh, it's, it's, what it tells you is essentially the average cost of energy at the generator terminals, but not the delivered cost of service at the customer meter. Mm. And there's a huge difference. And, and then the, the more of these um, cheap assets you put on the system, the more you will actually drive up the cost of the total system, which has to be ultimately has to be paid for by the customers. So this is, this is what I call the power cost paradox, Logan. So the power cost paradox is that if you just keep, you know, oh, let's look. So you look at the LCOE estimates, oh, wind is whatever it is. Let, let's just say wind and solar are about $50 a megawatt hour, five cents a kilowatt hour. And let's say that's the cheapest of all the generation options. So the, the obvious answer is, oh, we just build lots and lots of this cheap stuff and we'll end up with a really cheap system. Wrong. If you, if you just keep building lots and lots of the cheap stuff, you're going to end up with a really, really expensive system. That's the paradox. Mm. Well, it seems like that originally the LCOE was a metric that was put together when intermittency wasn't a thing. It, it just was, seems yeah. to be now that we've yeah. introduced these new technologies that introduce intermittency and we've just kind of swept that concern under a rug, which as far as I'm concerned, it's... It's a really big concern, and we're yeah. not giving so the question, it due respect. Yeah, that, that's right. That so the question, the, the, that's right, Logan. So the question, when the LCOE metric was uh, devised, the question was, how do I compare two power plants? One has very high capital costs up front, but low operating costs, and the other one has very low capital costs up front, but very high operating costs. So, for example. Well, how would you compare a, um, say, a nuclear plant, expensive to build, low fuel costs, with or, or a hydro plant, you know, expensive to build, zero fuel low costs. running costs. Yep. Yeah. How do you compare that with a gas-fired power plant or a coal-fired power plant? Cheaper to build, but higher running costs for the fuel. Mm. And the and and that's what the LCOE metric was um, developed for. But it was never an investment-grade metric. The National Renewable Energy Lab in the United States, you know, published a, a guide to all these things years ago, and it's very clear from that. It was never an investment-grade metric. It's just a sort of simple, quick sort of sorting tool or device for making some quick quick sort of... Some quick and dirty back of the end. Yeah, sort of wet finger in the wind, rule of thumb sort of comparisons. Yep. It's not an investment-grade metric, and, th and it's been completely abused uh, in more recent times. I remember reading something that's possibly one of the things that's prompted this overhaul, if you will, of the, the RIT T test is public opposition to wind farms in Western Victoria. Are you familiar with this at all? I know that there are people um, who are upset about uh, wind farms and transmission lines. Because mm. it would seem... Area. It would almost seem that this could be a way that they could do away with that test and make it easier to enforce these transmission lines and uh, well 
additional transmission lines through areas with without public consultation? Is that... Oh, and I think there's two issues. I think there's the economic issue. So yeah, the economic okay. issue is going to be important for anyone who has to pay transmission costs, which is anyone with an electricity account. You know, the transmission costs are embedded there in your electricity account. Okay. Um, so that that's that's a question. Land that's use is essentially question. a separate issue. The, the, the other issue is, um, you know, on what terms can people object to or be forced to accept um, public assets crossing their land? Mm. Uh, you know, what's the approvals process? Is there any compensation? You know, all those questions, I think, are separate questions. Yeah, now, I mean, the, 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 there's a linkage between the two, which is, you know, what, how long it takes you to develop the project and what you have to do to satisfy the environmental impacts and the and the acceptance by landowners and what have you might have cost implications, which will then flow into your economic test. So there is a linkage between them, but I do think they're separate issues. Hmm. Something else, it's a rumour that I heard, maybe you might know something about it, but um, the rumour that I heard is, okay, if you get you know a solar farm or wind turbines on your property, you can negotiate and you're generally entitled to some kind of um, remuneration for hosting that mm-hmm. that infrastructure. Though the rumour I heard is apparently if the government decides to place transmission infrastructure on your land, no such remuneration exists. Do you know anything about that? I think that's the existing situation, although I, I think there was, it might have been in the budget, wasn't it? There's some There's some discussion of, Paying um, some sort of access fees to landowners for transmission, yeah, which is which is probably a recognition that um, without that, um, people will be um, will be upset. I mean, obviously, if there's a you know if there's a wind turbine on your neighbour's farm and he's earning revenues and he thinks it's a great idea, um, it's long been observed that the person on the neighbouring farm who who might be visually impacted or otherwise impacted, you know, doesn't like it and he's not getting any money. Mm. But then the same argument applies as well to the transmission that's um, carrying the power from that wind farm. Mm. I mean, Robert Bryce, is, he does a lot of interviews with people that have these concerns. And I'm mm. wondering if we're very much not as far down that track, but are heading in the same direction. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I, yeah. Mm. these are important public policy issues. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know, it just seems that we are determined not to take not to take heed of the mistakes that other ma- nations are making. It's almost comical to watch. Oh, yeah, I think that's, um, that's a good observation. There's a tendency, probably a tendency in Australia to think that um, we're different here or we don't need to pay attention to lessons from overseas, which I think is a mistake. The one that irritates me is uh, people say, well, we have the best solar and wind resources in the world, which... I think technically you can say is correct, but it's a little bit like saying, you know, we've got the best tents in the world. It still doesn't substitute for you know living in a house. You know, you can say that a um, that yeah, our solar yeah. resources are better than Germany because the sun shines brighter here, but there's still only so much raw energy that is available through solar through say solar radiance or solar PV. Uh, it's 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 not, it's, it's not the crucial comparison. Mm. It's a comparison, but there are other important comparisons that uh, that are probably more important, and it doesn't take account of the saturation problem. When you say saturation problem, 
What do you mean? Well, how much how much wind and solar power yeah. can you put on the system before you have technical problems balancing generation and demand? Number one. Yeah. Okay. Number two. Um, uh, economic problems and number three, political um, a political reaction. Yeah, fair enough. Right. Yeah. Look, this has been pretty good. We're pretty much coming up onto on an hour, so I'll, I think we'll wrap it up fairly soon. But um, it would be remiss of me to not at least come across or at least raise that uh, I think it was last year you published a report called What Would Be Required? Uh, a Theoretical Path to Deploying Nuclear in Australia by the 2030s. Do you want to discuss that briefly? Yeah, so the report uh, was published by the University of Queensland. We did the, the research at the university. Um, it's actually, I'm going to say, Logan, it's not a theoretical path. I'm going to say it's um, it's intended to be a practical path. So we, we actually included um, a practical program of action um, among the recommendations. But that was the research question we were asked was, okay, imagine, um, cast your mind forward to the future, the bans on nuclear energy have been removed. Um, we're not going to imagine, it's not going to be the case that magically nuclear power plants just start popping up all over the place once the bans removed. Mm. What, you know, there, there would be a whole lot of work would need to be done. So what would actually be required to get to the point of having um, nuclear energy plants operating from the 2030s in Australia? And so that, that research question became the title of our um, study. Mm -hmm. And we broke that down into... Um, a series of chapters, eight chapters. Um, so we looked at technology selection, project management, um, governance, um, you know, the, the, the regulatory and legal and uh, infrastructure sitting that would need, be needed to uh, accompany the industry. Um, we looked at capabilities, um, you know, the capabilities of people and companies and organizations to to build and operate um, these kind of assets we looked at um, the social the societal question public trust how do you get to the point where there's broad deep public trust in the industry and support for the industry not just sort of today or you know next year but that that will carry through multiple parliaments i mean just to get from the start to the first plant is going to take you through at least probably three, two to three federal parliaments. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, and then the life of the asset will carry through, you know, what, 15 to 20 federal parliaments and multiple state parliaments. So through all those changes um, over time, you need to have broad social support. And that, so that needs to, there's work needed to, to get to that point. Um, and we talked about siting, you know, the kind of sites where you might uh, put these, these assets uh, we talked about um, the economics, the economics of nuclear energy within the NEM. And we talked about financing. How would you, you know, what would it take to get financing together to actually build a plant? So that was the way we approached it. And the big thing that, the big thing that actually surprised me is realising, reaching the conclusion and realising, actually, yeah, we can do this. If we want to, we are capable of doing this which i didn't think was the case i didn't realize that was the case yeah wow and is this report available for people to peruse yeah so it's available online if you go energy dot 
uq.edu.au slash what would be required. That'll take you to a page and then under nuclear energy, you know, you can download the PDF. There's also uh, printed copies available that um, people can request if they'd like uh, a printed copy. I'll make a I'll make a reference in the show notes. Look, um, we're over an hour now. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Stephen Wilson. Thank you for appearing on Going Fishing. Thanks, Logan. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Going Fishing would like to thank Stephen Wilson for appearing on the podcast. In the show notes are links to Stephen's LinkedIn profile, as well as a link to the University of Queensland report on what would be required for nuclear power in Australia in the 2030s. Additionally, I've got a link to Stephen Wilson's Power Hungry podcast, mentioned at the start of the episode, along with some ABC News articles regarding announcements that we covered in the episode. Thank you for listening. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.